You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Explorers Podcast. Today we start a new series. This one is on the legendary English captain, explorer, and privateer, Francis Drake. Drake is probably the greatest naval commander of the Elizabethan era. He not only sailed around the world, he helped defeat the fabled Spanish Armada in 1588. This would make him one of England's greatest heroes. Francis Drake would have a long and fascinating life. On the Explorers podcast, we will talk about all of it, but the focus will be on his time in the New World, and of course, his circumnavigation of the globe. So, know that while Drake's time in Europe fighting the Spanish is a great story, we won't go too much in depth on that subject. Although I do have to say that with Drake, there will always be fighting. Even his voyages of discovery are heavily interlaced with military matters. In today's episode, we will do three things. First, we will do a review of Drake's early life. Second, we will cover some English history, in particular the religious conflicts that dominated much of the nation, conflicts that would greatly affect Drake's life. And third, we'll follow the career of Drake the seaman, starting with him going to sea at a young age, through his time as an officer sailing with the legendary Captain John Hawkins. Our episode will climax with the Battle of San Juan de Ulua, a seminal event in Drake's life. Now, before we get going, I do want to throw out a few notes. For this episode, I have put a map of the Caribbean on our website, explorerspodcast.com. On it, I have noted some important locations we will visit in the episode, so you might want to check it out. Also, you'll find a few images, including a painting of Drake, plus a drawing of the Battle of San Juan de Ulua. So again, go take a look-see if you so desire. Also, regarding our sources for this series, While there is quite a bit of information about Drake available, much of that centers around his later life. His early years, however, are a very different story. What we have is sketchy, and the source material is often contradictory. So understand that what we know about Drake, especially in this first episode, is quite murky, and our narrative will reflect that. In the end, we just have to sift through it all to find our story. With that, let us get started with Part 1 of Francis Drake. Francis Drake was born around 1540 in Tavistock, Devon, England. The exact date and year are not known, but 1540 is the most commonly accepted year. Tavistock is in the southwest of England, about 12 miles north of Plymouth, one of the most important ports in England. Francis's parents were Edmund and Mary Drake. The couple would have 12 sons, with Francis being the eldest. Drake's ancestors were yeoman farmers, middle-class workers, who initially leased lands from the local monastery, and then from the local lord when ownership changed. By tradition, the eldest son would inherit the right to rent those lands upon his father's death. However, Edmund Drake was not the eldest son. Thus, while he likely grew up a farmer, it would not be his life's work. Now let's stop and take in a little bit of English history, as it is important to this story. England in the 16th century was undergoing immense changes, in particular with regard to religion. The nation had been staunchly Catholic, but King Henry VIII would instigate the English Reformation, resulting in the separation of the Church of England from the influence of the papacy. This, of course, was not a simple matter. It was a long and arduous affair, dividing regions and towns and families. Drake's family would embrace the Reformation and were strong supporters of the Protestant cause and the English crown. For decades, religious strife would make the nation a hotbed of domestic turmoil. Add in intrigues and conflicts with England's neighbors, such as Scotland, Ireland, and Wales, plus economic issues, and you find a land bubbling with plots and discontent. King Henry would die in 1547 and was succeeded by his son, 
Edward VI. Edward, even though he was only a boy, embraced the Reformation even more than his father. During his reign, the Church of England would emerge as a Protestant body. One of the key reforms of the Church was the introduction of the Book of Common Prayer in 1549. This new prayer book presented the theology of the English Reformation, and it did so in English, not Latin. This coincided with other attempts to alter or replace or remove Roman Catholic icons and liturgy. Also, lands traditionally owned by the Church were confiscated by the state. The result of this was the Prayer Book Rebellion in the areas of Devon and Cornwall in southwest England in 1549. On one hand, this was a backlash from devout Catholics who saw themselves as being persecuted, but it was also centered around the feeling from the Cornish people that their culture was being marginalized. In the end, it all led to revolt. The Prayer Book Rebellion would be short, but vicious and very bloody. Thousands would die. It was during this rebellion that Drake's father, Edmund, would move his growing family from Devon to Kent, located in the southeast corner of England. Tradition was that Edmund Drake's flight to Kent was the result of religious persecution. That may have been the case, but I have also read that he was charged with beating and robbing a man, charges that were later dropped. This, of course, may have been related to the rebellion, but we just don't know exactly why Edmund fled his home, but in the end, he did, and his son, Francis Drake, would always blame the family's flight on the Catholic Church and its supporters. In Kent, Edmund Drake would be hired to read prayers and act as a minister to the men in the English Navy. And it is here that Francis Drake would grow into a young man, surrounded by the sea and religion. His father taught Francis to read and write, and filled his son with a religious zeal unequaled by most men. However, the Drake family's lives would be threatened in 1553, when King Edward would die, and his half-sister Mary would take the throne. Mary was a faithful Catholic, and immediately began to roll back many of the religious reforms instituted by her predecessor. She would then marry Prince Philip of Spain, the heir to the Spanish throne. Many English feared this union, believing that it would bring about the domination of England by Spain and the Catholic Church. The result was, as you can imagine, more fighting. A rebellion centered near Kent began in 1554. It was called Wyatt's Rebellion, after one of its leaders, Thomas Wyatt. The rebels would lose the fight, and there would be retaliations throughout the country, especially in Kent. This included many executions. During Mary's reign, hundreds of prominent Protestants fled into exile rather than face execution or imprisonment. The Queen was nicknamed Bloody Mary by her enemies because of her persecution of Protestants. All of this was seen by 15-year-old Francis Drake, and he would not forget it. It was said that one of his favorite books was Acts and Monuments by John Fox. It was a history of the Protestant martyrs of the reign of Mary. Drake reportedly carried it with him all over the world. Now, Edmund Drake would manage to avoid being entangled in all these troubles during Mary's reign. Then, in 1558, Mary would die at the age of 42, having produced no heir to the throne. This made Elizabeth, her half-sister, queen. Mary's harsh treatment of Protestants would be reversed by Elizabeth, but there was a bitterness and anger and wariness that was felt toward Catholicism, and Francis Drake would inherit all of those traits. I talk about these things because they will be such a part of Francis Drake's character. He was a rigid and righteous man who not only embraced the English Reformation and the English crown, but rejected all things related to the Catholic Church. Everything that Drake did in his life would be cloaked in religion in some fashion. And these attitudes only seemed to grow as he got older. It was said that he would pray and worship for hours at a time, and that his favorite sayings were, by God's faith and if God wills. And let us know that this zeal and drive that he possessed was not just about religion. 
Drake would make these things an essential part of his core being. One biographer said of Drake that he was, in all things, quote, extreme and uncompromising, end quote. Anyhow, as Drake grew up, his father was not a man who would have a lot of money. He would eventually become a vicar in 1561, but that was not a position that he could pass on to his children. It would stay with the church. And with 12 sons, there were not a lot of prospects for a boy like Francis, even if he was the eldest. The bottom line was that Francis Drake's family had little money and limited social connections in the world. This meant that the children of Edmund Drake would have to make their way in the world without much support. For Francis, that would mean finding work at a young age, and the simplest way to earn a trade on the coast of England was via the sea. Francis Drake was taken on as an apprentice to a local man who owned and operated a small coastal bark, which transported goods across the English Channel. A bark was a multi-masted boat. Many were converted barges. The bark was not a large vessel, but it was generally seen as sturdy in construction and could carry a lot of cargo. They were often used as supply in merchant ships. Thus, Francis Drake would spend his teenage years learning to be a sailor. He learned how to master the tides and the currents and the shoals and the winds, as well as how to use the sun and the stars to guide him. It was a hard life, but Francis Drake seems to have taken to it. He was a hard worker, well-liked, ambitious, and likely better educated than most, as his father had taught him to read and write. The owner of the small ship was an elderly man who took a liking to young Francis. As he had no family, the ship owner would will the bark to Drake upon his death, which happened around 1558. Instead of continuing his life as a small-time boatman, Drake sold the bark and headed back to his home county of Devon. There he made contact with a prominent local family, the Hawkins, specifically brothers William and John. The Hawkins family were ship owners and appear to have been related to Drake. It is believed they were second cousins. Through them, he landed a job as a purser. The purser was the money man on a ship. It was not an insignificant job. Drake was only 18 or so, but he could read and write, and his position showed that the ship's owners, it was likely the Hawkins family, trusted that he would look after their investment. For the next few years, Drake would sail along the western coast of Europe, learning his trade. He would grow into a charismatic, self-assured young man. You could say that he had a swagger to him. People liked him and trusted him. And it was at this time that Drake would come more and more into the orbit of his kinsman, specifically John Hawkins. And with that, it is a good time to introduce John Hawkins, because he plays an important role in Drake's life, and especially in today's episode. As noted, the Hawkins family was a prominent one in the port of Plymouth. The two brothers, William and John, would take over the family shipping business upon the death of their father in the mid-1550s. John Hawkins would take an active role in the business and become an accomplished sailor and leader. He also proved to be an opportunistic and bold man. In the early 1560s, he recognized that the Spanish colonies in the New World were being underserved, meaning that the goods that they wanted and needed were not reaching the markets in New Spain. The most profitable of these goods were slaves. In 1562, the 30-year-old Hawkins would conduct an expedition to Africa, where he would see several Portuguese ships. Hawkins would then take the slaves and transport them to the Caribbean, specifically to Santo Domingo, on the island of Hispaniola. He would then sell them and make a sweet little profit on the venture. Okay, a few things here. 1. This marks the first English foray into slave trading, not exactly something we like to crow about nowadays. 2. Hawkins was disregarding the fact that Portugal and England were not at war. And 3. It was technically illegal to trade in the Spanish colonies without a license, which Hawkins did not have. The local officials in Hispaniola allowed the trading to happen because they wanted what Hawkins had to offer. This was a problem throughout the New World. Now, the local administrators in Santo Domingo and elsewhere may have been okay with these deals, but the Spanish crown was not. 
The last thing they wanted was unsanctioned English traders cutting into the New World economy. Thus, after finding out about Hawkins' venture, the Spanish crown would ban all English ships from trading with the West Indies colonies. Now, Spain trying to control all the trade in the Caribbean was unrealistic. The Spanish naval presence was limited, and piracy and illegal trading was extremely common. The colonies, after all, wanted the things that men like Hawkins were bringing them. And if their own merchants couldn't get it to them, well, this would have to do. However, as the rivalry between England and Spain increased, so did the Spanish desire to thwart this kind of behavior. England, due to their own internal issues, were late to the colonization game. And they wanted to get on this game because there was money to be made. Portugal was getting rich from its operations in Africa and the Far East, while Spain was making oodles of cash from the colonies in the Americas. In fact, the Americas were what fueled the Spanish Empire. In Europe, Spain would take control of the Netherlands in 1556, and the cost to maintain it was enormous. And there were ventures and conflicts in Africa, the Middle East, and the Far East. All this was funded by New World Silver. Deposits discovered in 1545 at Potosi, Bolivia, would be the richest silver deposits in history. In fact, these mines are still active to this day. Every year, two fleets of ships would go between the New World and Spain, each loaded with loot, loot that would fill the coffers of the Spanish crown and feed their growing empire. Men like John Hawkins saw a way to make good money, and they seized it. Hawkins did what he wanted and what was necessary and dared the Spanish, or his own government, to rebuke him. He would be an inspiration to Francis Drake. Emboldened by the success of his first voyage, Hawkins planned another. This venture, which took place in 1564, had the tacit approval of the English crown as Elizabeth invested in the expedition by leasing to Hawkins an old 700-ton carrack named Jesus of Lubeck. Hawkins also had three other smaller vessels. The plan was basically the same script as before. Go to Africa, collect slaves, then head to the Caribbean and trade. Come home with lots of money. But one important thing about this voyage is that we believe that Francis Drake would go along on this expedition. I say believe because we are not positive. Different sources say different things, and it's all pretty murky. No matter, after looking at a variety of sources and experts, the belief seems to be that Drake was with Hawkins, so I'm going to go with that for our narrative. Drake, by the way, would be about 24 years old at the time of this voyage. So Hawkins headed to West Africa with his small fleet, privateering along the way. When he had enough slaves, 400 of them, he headed west. Everything had gone pretty well. At the town of Borborada, on the western coast of Venezuela, Hawkins dealt many of his slaves, even though, as we talked about earlier, it was technically illegal for him to trade with the Spanish. The local officials just charged him a special tax to conduct trade. I mean, here was Hawkins with slaves that the local officials wanted, so why not make the deal? Everyone leaves happy, no harm, no foul. This process repeated itself along the South American coast. Some places would protest, but a combination of bribes and threats usually made things work. In some cases, the Spanish would even put on a mock display of resistance to Hawkins. Example, at the port of Rio Acha, the English landed some men as if to attack. The Spanish greeted them with a show of resistance, and each side shot off their rifles over the heads of their foes. Then the Spanish would give up. They could now claim that they had resisted the English and were forced to authorize trading. Some Spanish officials even encouraged Hawkins to return, with more slaves and trade goods. Hawkins and his small fleet would return to England in September of 1565, his expedition turning a 60% profit. As for Drake, he would have gained invaluable experience, and his time with Hawkins likely solidified his respect and admiration for the man. With this voyage and the next ones associated with Hawkins, Drake would enhance his reputation as a competent and dedicated sailor. And I want to note that even at sea, Drake never wavered in his religious worship reportedly preaching to the men of the fleet about the evils of the papacy and the glories of the English Reformation. 
As a preacher, he was said to have had not just a passion, but a natural eloquence, like his father. In Spain, word of Hawkins' exploits enraged the king and his ministers. They protested to Elizabeth and were promptly ignored. However, the transgressions of Hawkins would harden the resolve of the Spanish crown going forward, and trading in the Caribbean would prove to be much more difficult in the future. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED lights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. The success of John Hawkins' voyage would lead to yet another expedition. However, this time Hawkins would not participate in the affair. Instead, his family provided backing for the expedition. This venture would include three ships under the command of John Lovell. Drake would participate in this expedition, most likely as an officer, but we don't know the specifics. The expedition departed in November of 1566 and headed south, down the coast of Africa, toward the coast of Guinea. This was an area well guarded by the Portuguese. Near the Cape Verde Islands, the fleet seized a total of five Portuguese ships filled with wax, sugar, slaves, and ivory. And these were not peaceful encounters. Some of these ships resisted, and fighting erupted. These were probably the first battles that Drake took part in. Again, it's important to note that the English were nothing more than pirates. England and Portugal were not at war, and this was nothing but base greed. After all of this, Lovell would head west, intent on trading his slaves. He first went to Borburada, where we don't really know exactly what happened. But next, he went to Rio Acha, on the northern coast of modern-day Colombia. There, the port's commander, Miguel de Castellanos, who had traded with Hawkins on the previous voyage, rejected the English demands to trade with them. Threats would not work, as Lovell's squadron was not that strong, and Castellanos was eager to not show any weakness, like he had done the last time. Lovell would then spend several days waiting and trying to get the Spanish to play along, before finally giving up. There were some reports that the English and Spanish exchanged cannon fire in the affair, but we don't know the specifics. Before departing in June of 1567, Lovell would leave nearly a hundred slaves on shore, mostly the old and sick and starving. In the end, Lovell sailed away, and the English, including Drake, stewed about the supposed dishonorable behavior of the Spanish. These were the same people who had encouraged the English to bring them slaves, and now they were being rejected. It was further proof of Spanish duplicity. Lovell's expedition would be a failure, and would return to England shortly thereafter. Once back in England, Drake would quickly find himself with a new job, that of an officer in John Hawkins' next expedition to Africa. It was September of 1567, and Hawkins had assembled a formidable fleet. He had six vessels, including the big 700-ton Jesus of Lubeck. There was also the 300-ton Minion, which was mounted with brass and iron cannon. The other ships included the 150-ton William and John, the 100-ton Swallow, and a 50-ton ocean bark, the Judith, plus another small vessel, the 32-ton Angel. Drake was assigned to the Jesus of Lubeck as an officer. It was a prominent position, as Jesus of Lubeck was Hawkins' own ship. It's important to remember that Drake had come from a very modest situation, so his appointment as an officer on the flagship of a fleet demonstrates the high regard that Hawkins and others had for him. Again, the English crown would have an investment in this slave-trading venture. Of course, no one said this was a slave-trading expedition, 
When pressed, people, including Spanish officials, were told the ships were going to Africa in search of gold mines. And of course, Hawkins would not dream of trying to trade in the New World against the laws of Spain. Yeah, sure. The English could say what they wanted and could give all the assurances in the world, but this was, as before, a slave trading expedition. Hawkins and his fleet would depart Plymouth on October 2, 1567. There were between four and 500 men in the fleet. The fleet would quickly have problems due to the deteriorating conditions of Jesus of Lubeck. The big carrack was old and decaying. Her pumps were manned night and day just to keep her from taking on too much water. Hawkins and the fleet would make their way down the coast of Africa, where they would stop at the Canary Islands in order to refit Jesus of Lubeck. After this was complete, they headed to the African mainland. Off the African coast, the fleet would seize an abandoned Portuguese ship and add it to their ranks. Hawkins then went about gathering slaves. He did this in two ways. One, he would go ashore and raid villages. And two, he would stop Portuguese ships and take slaves from them. The actions on the African mainland were deadly for both sides. On the first raid ashore, Hawkins would be wounded, and seven or eight men would die from poison arrows. It was a high price for the British, as they captured only nine Africans, but this did not dissuade them. The English would continue their forays, sailing up rivers and attacking villages, or preying on smaller Portuguese traders and merchants, seizing their goods, which often included slaves. There was even an attempt to capture a Portuguese trading post, but that would be repulsed. Drake took part in this failed endeavor, and four men would be lost in the fighting. Again, let's remember something really important here. England and Portugal were not at war. This was outright piracy. Attacking Portuguese ships and towns, this was audacious and illegal and morally wrong. And let us not forget, it was all for gathering slaves. This was brutally sad and unforgivable, the result of greed and arrogance. The expedition's time in Africa would culminate in January of 1568. The English, led by Hawkins, surrounded and attacked a fortified native town in Sierra Leone. With the help of the town's enemies, the English captured the town after fierce fighting. Roughly 10 Englishmen died in the assault, but they gathered 250 slaves, raising the total that they had to more than 400. It was now time to head west and sell them. Hawkins' fleet, which had started as six ships, was now ten. In addition to seizing several smaller ships, the fleet would encounter a group of French pirates. The French had captured a Portuguese caravel, which Hawkins took for himself. The ship would be renamed Grace of God, and Francis Drake would be given command. Ah, his first command. It was just a small caravel, but it was likely a momentous occasion for the man. In addition to this caravel, one of the French ships joined Hawkins, apparently enticed by his operation. The ten ships would depart, reaching the Caribbean island of Dominica in late March. They took on supplies, then headed toward the South American coast. Now, at some point between Africa and the early days in the New World, Drake would be given command of the Judith, one of the fleet's original ships. We don't know why this happened or exactly when, but it did. The fleet would eventually reach Borburata on the coast of Venezuela. Here, Hawkins had successfully traded on his previous voyage. However, as Lovell had discovered, things had changed in the area. The town's commander was not going to give in so easily. The Spanish crown was now cracking down on all of this illegal trade, and local officials violating the laws were being held accountable. Unable to negotiate a trade agreement, and not sure of his ability to take the port, Hawkins sailed west to Rio Acha, the site of Lovell's humiliation the previous year. Hawkins sent Drake ahead with Judith as well as Angel. At Rio Acha, Drake's request to take on water and supplies was rejected. The two sides would then exchange a few shots with their cannons, and several men would die. Knowing that he would not be able to take the town until Hawkins arrived, Drake was content to pull back out of the range of the town's guns, where he could simply blockade the port and wait. Hawkins would arrive at Rio Acha on June 10th. 
he would send a request to the Spanish, asking to sell 60 slaves. He claimed that he had been driven to the port by storms, and he had not meant to violate Spanish laws. He only needed to sell the slaves so he could pay his crew. Of course, that was a bunch of crap, and the Spanish knew it. They told Hawkins to get lost. The next day, 200 Englishmen landed ashore and marched on the town. The Spanish had about 100 arquebusiers, 20 horsemen, and some local militia types, the latter very unreliable. A fight would break out, and after a few volleys of gunfire, the Spanish resistance would collapse. The English lost just two men in the assault. The Spanish commander, Castellanos, fled into the jungle with his men and many of the town's citizens. On his way out, Castellanos destroyed valuables, such as crops and supplies, so that they would not fall into the hands of the English invaders. And then a standoff began. The English wanted loot, but the Spanish had hid their valuables in event of this occurrence. The Spanish figured they could just wait out the English, who would have to leave once they ran out of food. To prod the Spanish, Hawkins would threaten to burn the town, but Castellanos did not cave. Even after 20 houses were put to the torch, the Spanish refused to negotiate. Then Hawkins and English were given a gift. A black slave defected from the Spanish and took the English to where the Spanish had hidden many of their valuables, a spot about six miles outside of town. Now, this was not necessarily gold and silver and jewels, but furniture and machinery and whatever else was critical to the town's operation. This was not stuff that the English could really use. However, it was a bartering tool, and Hawkins used it. After threatening to burn everything, a ransom was struck. The Spanish would give the English 4,000 pesos in gold coins, and in return, Hawkins would give the Spanish slaves, and not destroy everything. Thus, a deal was done. By the way, the slave who defected to the English was promptly handed back to the Spanish by Hawkins, and the Spanish promptly executed the man. The English sailed next to the port of Santa Marta. It was a small settlement of less than 50 homes, and could not resist Hawkins and his men. Thus, the English met with Hawkins upon his arrival, and organized one of those fake attacks. In it, the English landed their men, each side shot off their guns, and the Spanish raised their arms in surrender. They could now say that they had tried to stop the English. When all was done, the Spanish gave Hawkins a trading license, and he promptly sold more than 100 of his African slaves to the town. At this point, Hawkins now only had about 55 to 60 slaves left. He had accumulated quite a bit of treasure, primarily gold and silver and pearls, worth more than 13,000 English pounds. It was not a bad haul. But the loot list would grow if the English could sell the remaining slaves. For that, Hawkins took aim at Cartagena, located in modern-day Venezuela. The English arrived at Cartagena on June 23rd, and like all the other ports, overtures to trade were rejected. But Cartagena was a well-fortified port. It was not a place the English could storm. The two sides would exchange threats and some cannon fire for about a week, but the Spanish were not budging. Finally, Hawkins decided that this was not worth a hassle, and it was time to head home. He had made a nice profit already, and there was no point in risking all of that. By the way, I am not sure if Hawkins just left the slaves at Cartagena, or if he dropped them somewhere else. We just never get an answer. With this venture coming to a close, the French privateer who had joined Hawkins off the coast of Africa decided it was time to depart. And with the slaves mostly gone, the fleet did not need as many vessels. Thus, one of the ships seized in Africa was scuttled. This brought the fleet down to eight ships. Hawkins would head north, his intention to sail between Cuba and Florida and catch the currents home. Then, on August 12th, while in the Gulf of Mexico, a massive storm would strike the fleet. It would go on for eight days, and the men would work nonstop to keep the ships from sinking. The Jesus of Lubeck had holes so large that the men found fish swimming in the hull. When the storms finally cleared, the fleet was in tatters. One of the ships, the William and John, was missing, having been carried away from the fleet. The vessel, unable to find the rest of the fleet, would head home on her own. She would reach Ireland, but on the way to England, be lost at sea and never heard from again. 
As for Hawkins and Drake and the fleet, they needed some place to take on provisions, plus repair the ships. Jesus of Lubeck was in particularly bad shape and sported a damaged rudder. It was here that the fleet came upon three Spanish ships, merchantmen heading west, toward the port of San Juan de Ulua, about 15 miles from modern-day Veracruz on the coast of Mexico. From these merchantmen, the English learned that the main Spanish fleet, the legendary treasure fleet that went between Spain and the New World twice a year, was due in the area any day. The fleet was coming to the New World, bringing much-needed supplies to the colonies. It would return with silver. Now, Hawkins had no desire to mess with this large fleet, but his ships were in bad shape, and he had no friendly port nearby, and he couldn't just run away. He really didn't have a lot of choices. He would go to San Juan de Alua and hope that the Spanish fleet didn't get there before he was ready to depart. San Juan de Alua was a small base, only three years old. There was an island in a harbor with a gun battery, plus some huts on the mainland. It was not much. The English arrived at San Juan de Alua on September 15th, escorting, and I used air quotes on that, the three Spanish merchants. So when this big group of ships arrived, Spanish officials in the port rode out to greet them, thinking that this was the great Spanish flota that they were expecting. It wasn't until they got close that they realized who was waiting for them. Hawkins would seize the officials, but play nice. All he really wanted, he said, was to repair his ships and go home. The Spanish didn't really have any options, and Hawkins took control of the port. Hostages were taken and held on the English ships to ensure that there was no treachery. Well, if Hawkins was hoping to get out of port before the Spanish flota arrived, he would be disappointed. A couple of days later, on September 17th, 13 sails appeared on the horizon. The flota was here. It included two warships and 11 armed merchant vessels, plus Martin Enriquez de Almanza, the recently appointed viceroy of New Spain. Well, I'm sure this was awkward. The Spanish couldn't enter their own port. Remember, the English had control of everything, including the guns on the island in the harbor and the English weren't ready to leave, still needing repairs. And even if they were able to leave, the Spanish fleet was formidable. On the English side of the ledger, Jesus of Lubeck had 26 guns. Grace of God had 8. Swallow and the Portuguese caravel the fleet had added in Africa had a total of 11 guns between them. I could not find out how many guns Minion had, but it was probably between 12 and 20. The rest of the ships, including Drake's Judith, had only minimal firepower. I don't know the details on the Spanish ships, but it's widely believed that they were more powerful than the English vessels. Now, the Spanish could just not sit out in the Gulf of Mexico, as their ships would be vulnerable to storms that were battering the region. The merchant vessels were loaded with goods coming from Spain to the New World, and losing them would be a disaster. For Viceroy Almanza, it was a bad situation. He was charged with stopping men like Hawkins, but for now, he would have to work with them. The two sides approached each other cautiously and worked out a deal. Each side would send the other ten hostages to ensure no one reneged on the agreement. The English would let the Spanish into the harbor for their own safety, and in return, the English would be allowed to finish their repairs, then depart. For the duration of their stay, the English would man the battery of guns on the island in the harbor. Having these guns swung the balance of power to Hawkins and his fleet. This all sounded pretty reasonable. Hawkins really did just want to repair his ships and leave. But Viceroy Almanza had other ideas. This was a humiliation, having to make deals with English pirates in his own port. He could not stand for this. Almanza secretly dispatched a message to Veracruz, 15 miles away, and ordered troops to be sent. 100 men would arrive in short order, unbeknownst to the English. Now Almanza organized his attack. In the harbor, between the British and Spanish ships, was a large old merchant, the San Salvador, which was now just a hulk, meaning a ship that could still float, but was in such a state that it could not go out to sea. Almanza snuck on board the hulk between 150 and 300 men. Meanwhile, rowboats were readied out of sight of the British, 
each boat filled with armed men. The plan was to have a coordinated attack. The old hulk would be allowed to float toward the larger English ships, the Minion and Jesus of Lubeck. A signal would be given, and the attack would begin. The plan worked well enough until the British noted activity on the floating hulk. In fact, twice the English sent a representative to the Spanish commander to protest their obvious occupation of the abandoned ship. However, despite noticing things were amiss, the British were caught off guard when the signal to attack began. At the sound of a trumpet, rowboats filled with armed men suddenly appeared in the harbor. Spanish arquebusiers emerged from hiding in the hulk and began to fire on Minion and Jesus of Lubeck. The Spanish had stolen the moment. They hit the island unchallenged, and the critical gun battery was quickly overrun. The British fleet's best firepower was now in the hands of the enemy. It would not take long for Spanish troops to board Minion and Jesus of Lubeck. The fighting would be fierce, but the Spanish were repelled. Now it was time for the cannons to take control of the battle. The Jesus of Lubeck and Minion focused their fire on the two Spanish warships. The Spanish flagship, San Pedro, would be badly damaged. The other ship, Santa Clara, a galleon, would get pummeled and then sink when a shot hit her magazine, causing an explosion. More than 30 men were lost in that moment. In the fighting, Viceroy Almanza would have to abandon his ship. However, the island batteries devastated the English fleet at such close range. The Angel was sunk. The Swallow, Grace of God, and the Portuguese Caravel were damaged so badly they were abandoned. After that, the shore guns turned their attention to Jesus of Lubeck and Minion. Only the ship that had been anchored furthest from the battle, Drake's Judith, was spared the carnage. But remember, Judith was a small ship, an ocean-going bark meant for transport, not combat. She could only hang back and wait to help when and if the signal was given. The fighting would go on for hours. Ultimately, Hawkins knew that Jesus of Lubeck was a doomed ship. It was already in bad shape before the battle, and now it was battered to the point where it would never make it to sea. Hawkins turned Jesus of Lubeck, putting the big old carrick between Minion and the shore batteries, effectively using the former as a shield. Hawkins then signaled for Judith to come forward and ordered his men to board the remaining two vessels. It was a gutsy and smart move. Next, the Spanish took one of the abandoned ships and set it afire, creating a fire ship and aiming it at the English vessels. While the fire ship was ineffective, it spurred the English to get the heck out of the melee. Hawkins, now in command of Minion, and Drake in command of Judith, cut their ropes and weighed anchor and sailed out to sea. The Battle of San Juan de Ulua was over. The British fleet had been sunk and or routed. It was, by the way, the first battle by English-speaking people in the New World. So, with the battle over, the situation was a desperate one for the English. The fighting had gone on for six hours, and the survivors were exhausted. The 50-ton Judith was overcrowded. The 300-ton Minion was even worse, with more than 200 men packed on board and very few supplies. Luckily for the British, the Spanish could not follow. The winds shifted that night, and their warships were in no shape to pursue. Plus, they had just sunk five English ships and killed and captured many prisoners. And most importantly, they had driven the hated English from their colony. Even if they let these two ships get away, they had just scored a great victory. Now, in the aftermath of the battle, we come to the most controversial moment of Hawkins' voyage. As the sun rose the next morning, Captain Hawkins would wake to find that his kinsman, Francis Drake, and the small ship he commanded, was gone. What exactly happened is not known. Drake said that Minion was simply not there the next morning. It is speculated that Judith may have moved further out to sea to avoid the reefs in the area, or the two ships simply may have drifted apart in the night as the winds had been strong. No matter what happened, Francis Drake elected to head back to England on his own. As for Hawkins, he felt that Drake had abandoned him. It was a sore spot between the two men, and it is something that I will touch on in later episodes. But for now, let's get our two ships back home. 
The Judith would take months to get to England, returning sometime in late December of 1566 or January of 1569. I have seen both dates. As for Hawkins, the journey would be much worse. He had 200 men, but very few supplies. As starvation took hold of the ship, men elected to be put ashore. Some were left on the shores of what is now the Gulf Coast of the United States, willing to risk the natives. About 110 were left in Spanish holdings, turning themselves in to the local authorities in a bid for survival. Most of these men would never see their homes again. They were imprisoned and forced into hard labor, including life as a galley slave. Others were executed. The Spanish Inquisition would be established in the New World shortly after the Battle of San Juan de Ulua, and some of the prisoners in the fleet would suffer at its hands. Men were burned and strangled and whipped, amongst other things, by the Inquisition. In a weird twist, some of the information that we have on this battle comes from Spanish sources, information that they extracted from these captives. This includes details about Francis Drake, who the Spanish will quickly become very interested in. Hawkins would reach the British Isles on June 25, 1569. Only 15 of his men were still with him. Hawkins would say of the voyage, quote, If I should write of all our calamities, I am sure a volume as great as the Bible will scantily suffice. End quote. Now, Hawkins' ship, Minion, turned out to have much of the fleet's treasure, so the voyage was not a loss, at least financially. But that was a small victory, as there had been more than 400 men who had left England, and no more than a quarter of these had returned, maybe less. As for Francis Drake, he would go into damage control upon his return home. He wrote letters to the Queen's Council, as well as William Cecil, the Queen's Secretary of State. Drake cast the failure of the expedition on the duplicity of the Spanish. They had broken the treaty, an agreement made in good faith. Viceroy Almanza was the bad guy in all of this. Of course, Drake seemed to have forgotten that the English were there illegally and had attacked Spanish settlements. But that's easy for a guy like Drake to ignore. He was a self-righteous, obsessive man, and he had just lost his friends and shipmates, perhaps even the patronage of the Hawkins family, all because of the treachery of the Spanish. To him, Spain and the Catholic Church were demons, even the Antichrist. The Battle of San Juan de Ulua would change Francis Drake, and now he had a burning desire for vengeance. Many historians look at the battle and Drake's experience as something that will define him for the rest of his life. This would be his hatred for Spain and the papacy. I will leave you with a line from one of Drake's biographers. I think it sums up the situation very well. He said, at this time, quote, Francis Drake declared war upon the king of Spain, end quote. Again, I think that sums up Francis Drake pretty well. You can imagine what the future will bring. So that is it. Part one in our series on English explorer Francis Drake. As we said at the beginning, this part of the podcast covered its early life. It's a time that we don't know a lot about, but I think there's a good story emerging, and I believe that you'll enjoy the next episodes. I want to remind you that you can go to our website and see a map of all these places. That's at explorespodcast.com. You can also, if you desire, click on the donate button and perhaps give a few bucks to help keep this show viable. I appreciate any donations to this cause. Also on the site, you can click on our Twitter and Facebook links and come talk to us. We'd love to have you. So that is it. I hope you enjoyed this first episode on Francis Drake. See you next time.